tonight, so much. Hopefully it all worked out. Hopefully all you guys got into a life group. Um, if not, there's still an opportunity later tonight. Um, can we get that light down a tiny bit? It's like super bright. Anyway, um, how's everybody doing tonight? You guys are super excited. I'm excited. We're back. It felt like two, Brandon said it felt like three months. It's an absolute lie. It felt like two months, um, even though it's only two weeks. Um, so you guys might not know this. Uh, whoa, I said down, not up. <laughs> uh, so you guys might not know this, but there are 116 days left till Christmas. 116 days. Uh, I know that because I'm just that kind of person. Uh, growing up as a kid, I was that kid that was, like, super eager for Christmas, would, like, wake up at four in the morning, just ready to, like, open gifts and stuff, just super eager about that. But, like, regardless of how eager I was, regardless of how eager little kids get about Christmas, there is nothing that compares to the eagerness of a girl when she's about to get proposed to. Just absolutely nothing. I mean, just watch a proposal video. Go on YouTube watch a video, uh, watch your friends talk about eagerness. Like the second, like the guy gets on his knees, she loses it, right? Like you guys know what I'm talking about? She's like, oh my gosh, no. Like, no, no, stop, stop. You're not doing this right now. Stop it. And someday some guy's just going to full on stop it and be like, okay, like I'm going to save a couple thousand dollars on this ring um, and not do it. I mean, really though, like you can tell when a girl is, is about to get proposed to, it's not that she's just willing to get married, right? She's not like, okay, like, I guess we can do this. Like, she is eager to get married. And there's this huge difference between just willingness and eagerness. And tonight we'll see that there is this difference between willingness and eagerness when it comes to the things of God as well. When it comes to pursuing Christ, when it comes to living in community, when it comes to being eager about uh, living out the gospel. All right? So we're going to see the difference between those two things. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, um, I just thank you because you've given us your word, God, and that we can open it up and hear exactly what you have to say to us. Lord, that we um, can find truth in it. God, that you speak freely to us, God. We ask that you would just open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to whatever it is that you want to say to us tonight, Lord. Let us just um, be attentive to what your spirit has for us, God. And let me not get in the way uh, of, of your word, Lord, but let me speak your truth as your word leads me to. Praise in your name. Amen. All right. So tonight, we're starting a brand new series in the book of Romans. Um, it's actually the first series of a series of series in the book of Romans. Um, this part one is called Religion Kills. And we'll see how putting our trust in uh, religiousness or our performance or even stuff like spirituality, like how that actually is false hope that leads to death and that the only real hope is actually putting our faith in Jesus and what he's done and the gospel. Only that brings life. So since we're going to be in Romans for a while, what I want to do right now is kind of just lay down some background um, for, for this letter, for a little bit. So Romans is actually one of the most important letters written in the history of, of like the world, 
not even like in the history of Christianity, of religion, just in the history of the world. It has caused and started life-changing events. For example, it was by reading Romans that St. Augustine, the greatest thinker and theologian in Christianity ever, came to know the Lord, left his pagan ways, and became what he was. It was in reading Romans that Martin Luther rediscovered the fact that we are saved by faith, right? That it's an act of grace. And then that led him to start the Protestant Reformation, which absolutely changed the scope of not just Christianity, but just Europe and religion in general. And it was this book, this letter, that inspired John Bunyan while he was sitting in jail to write that classic, Pilgrim's Progress. And it was this same exact letter that Karl Barth, as he was reading it, discovered, uh, it led him to write the most devastating critique of liberal Christianity ever written. So you see, this letter, it's changed history. It's done so many things. But more importantly than that, like this book that you guys are holding, this book that we're going to be reading tonight, has changed the lives of countless numbers of people. Not just because of these historical events, but because so many people have come to know what faith in Jesus is because of this letter. So why did Paul write it? Was he just like sitting around one day and like thinking like, okay, like what should I do today? I think I'm going to write like a history-changing letter. I think that's, that's a good idea. Um, no, that's absolutely not what happened. It was around the year 55, um, and Paul is writing to this community that he had never met in person. He knew a lot of the people there, but he had never been there. He'd never been to that church. And he's writing for two reasons. The first reason is that he wants to unite a divided community. See, the early Roman church, it was, um, it was full of uh, Jewish Christians in the beginning, primarily Jewish Christians with a few uh, non-Jews, Gentiles, sprinkled in. And it was the year 45, and the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, basically kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and all of a sudden, like, you have an entirely Gentile church. So Claudius dies, the Jewish believers come back, and now you have two groups, the group that used to lead and be in charge, and the group that now leads and is in charge, and they're doing their things their own way, so they're butting heads. And Paul hates to see division in the church. He absolutely hates it. So he wants to address this. So that's the first thing he does. The second reason Paul's writing is because he wants to get mission support to go and preach the gospel to Spain. See, Paul, he was super clear on his calling. He knew exactly what his life was about and what his purpose in life was. And he knew why God had called him. And everything he did in his life centered around this one purpose. Absolutely everything he did centered around this. Paul knew that he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why God had saved him. So he's determined to go to Spain uh, because at, the, at that time, um, that, that was before Columbus, before the Vikings, before all that sort of stuff, Spain was literally the end of the world. Like there was nothing past Spain. So Paul felt that if he could get to Spain, basically he had done his whole task. He had preached the gospel everywhere. So Paul's asking for prayer and financial support to go on this mission trip. So how does he do that? How does he accomplish both of these two purposes? Is it by saying, hey guys, like unity, like it's important, just do it. Missions, super important, just hand over some cash. Like you guys have to do it. That's not what he does. He doesn't just come flat out and say like, do these things. 
He motivates them to unity and to mission by preaching the gospel to them. And that's, that's how he does it. If you've read Romans, you, you might have noticed that it's structured in a certain way. Like the first ch- eight chapters are all about the gospel. Then chapters 9 and 11, uh, they get sort of weird for most people. They're about Israel and, and Gentiles, and it's sort of confusing how that fits in. And then the rest of the book is a bunch of practical advice. Um, so why does he spend so much time on the gospel, which seems so basic, and the story of Israel? Well, what he's doing is that he's reminding them of the story that they live in, right? And this is so important because the fact is that the story that you live by will determine what you do with your life. The story that you live by is going to determine what you do with your life. So he reminds them that they're part of this larger story of how God rescued both Jews and Gentiles from sin and death and how God is creating this brand new community and how one day God is going to come back and he's going to restore all things. And he reminds them, this is a story that you're a part of. So live as though this story were actually true. But before he does any of that, chapter one, what he does is he lays out the vision for this book. And more importantly for for us, he lays out a vision for what the Christian life actually looks like. So um, why don't you guys go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1. And we'll see that according to Paul, the Christian life is a life of eagerness to live by the truths of the gospel. So if you have your Bible or Bible apps, we're in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. So here's what it says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing that Paul wants them to know is that he is a servant. He's a servant. To the Gentiles in his audience, they would have heard that and that would have just been such a lowly thing. They would have heard that he's a servant and they would have been like, ugh, like, a servant, like you can't get any lower than that. But that's the position of humility that the great Paul himself claims for himself. The Jews, on the other hand, they would have heard this idea that he's a servant differently because they would have been used to this Old Testament idea of the servant of the Lord. Basically, to be a servant of the Lord was an honor because you, were, you get to be in the Lord's presence and you get to serve him and you get to speak on his behalf. So either way, whether they, they would have taken it as a, a very honorable position or a very lowly position, because you had both of these kinds of people in the audience, Paul's making clear who he belongs to, right? And that he's under the authority of Jesus. He's not under his own authority, right? His mission, his task, his apostleship, none of that is his own. He didn't just come up with this on his own and decide he was going to do it. That was all a task given to him by God. And the one that he serves is Christ Jesus. Christ being the Greek word for Messiah, basically meaning uh, the anointed kingly figure promised in Scripture. In other words, Paul says he serves King Jesus. Verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Again, Paul just emphasizes the kingly nature of Jesus. And he does that by making reference to David, who was basically the prototypical king for the Jewish believers, right? Much like George Washington is kind of the ideal or, or prototype of what a president should be like, David was this ideal king. And Paul ties Jesus to David, basically saying he's from a royal line of David. So Jesus is king. And there's this really weird verse, verse 4, um, which seems to say that Jesus became the Son of God after the resurrection, but that's not really what's happening. Um, what's happening is that he becomes the Son of God in power, just in power. So before the resurrection, Jesus was the Son of God in weakness. He came as a servant. He came uh, in humility, born in a manger, Right? But after the resurrection, that's like stage two. Like now this is Jesus, like King Jesus reigning in power. All right? Verse five. Through him and for his name's sake, you received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. So what we see in this short passage, verses 1 to 6, is part of Paul's vision for the Christian life. And that part is that there is an eagerness to bring honor to King Jesus. There's an eagerness to bring honor to King Jesus. First off, we see him as a servant, right? That's how he self-identifies. He has this willingness to do whatever, to go wherever, literally wherever, like to the ends of the earth, to literally lay down his life, because years later, he's going to die for his faith in Rome. For Paul, his life is not his own. For Paul, his life belongs to Jesus. And it's because it belongs to Jesus that he's willing to do anything, and he's willing to give up everything for him. And you can just tell, just from reading this, that it brings him great joy to serve him, right? So, So what's Paul's motivation? Paul says that his motivation, it's all for the sake of Jesus' name. Paul is so in awe of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he's so thankful for the fact that Jesus has saved him and rescued him. And he's so in awe of the fact that Jesus alone is Lord, that he would do anything to bring him glory and honor and fame. Absolutely anything. That's how Paul sees Jesus. And notice he's super clear about his call, about his purpose in life. And he's determined. He wants to bring all of the Gentiles, that is everybody who has not heard about God yet, to the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, Paul wants to see every knee bow down to Jesus. He wants the whole world to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, and honor him as the Lord and King of everything. He wants people to see that there is absolutely no other Lord and King, right? Caesar is not Lord. There is one Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our day, this claim that there is one Lord, right, that there is one way, it's super controversial. Like, that's not something that people want to hear. If you say that Jesus is the only way, that he's the only Lord, you might be accused of being intolerant, 
Right? Our postmodern culture says that to claim that Jesus is the only way is morally wrong because it, it, it's a claim to superiority. It's saying my religion, my faith is superior to everyone else's. Therefore, you should not say things like that. But the fact is that that sort of claim in and of itself is a claim to superiority, right? It's a claim saying my religious views, specifically the view that no religious view should claim that it's the only way, is the actual correct religious view. So it's sort of self-defeating. It's what D.A. Carson calls the intolerance of tolerance. Culture says that it's all about tolerance, right? Until you question its specific views of what tolerance should be. And tolerance just goes out the window. But again, that that logic is self-defeating because real tolerance is an attitude of respect and civility, right? Real tolerance doesn't mean that you must accept everything as true or believe everything or agree with everyone. Real tolerance means you take those views and even though you might disagree with them, Right, you still treat them respectfully and civilly. Our pluralist world, our pluralist culture, it doesn't consider, it considers the claim that Jesus is king to be absolutely intolerant. But the fact is that the Bible leaves no room for anything else. Right? The Bible is super clear and it repeatedly claims that Jesus alone is Lord, that there is no other Lord other than Jesus Christ. It claims that, that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is what scripture constantly and repeatedly says. And it is because Jesus is Lord that he deserves all honor. Right? And it's because Jesus is Lord that he's actively building his kingdom. Right? And he's extending this kingdom to every aspect of life. There's this, um, this 19th century Dutch prime minister, pastor, theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And he says that there is not one square inch of creation over which Christ does not declare mine. Business, government, the arts, family, sports, everything exists for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. So what would it look like to be eager to honor King Jesus in your career, right? in your future marriage, in your plans for this semester at school? How would your life be different if you lived as though you were actually a servant of Jesus Christ the King? How would your life be different if you were like Paul and were just willing to submit the entire purpose of your life over to him. Verse seven. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how I constantly How constantly I remember you in my prayers all the times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened up for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Do you guys know um, somebody who's just a super fan of like some sports team? They just like bleed their colors. Like Raider fans are notoriously famous for that. They're, which I don't know why they're like the worst team ever. Um, but Raider fans are crazy. They're just so intense. It's like, whoa, like, you guys need to calm down. There's no point in, like, getting excited because you guys are going to lose. Um, well, Paul, in just in a similar way, he bleeds community. He, like, drips community. It's so clear in this passage that there is an eagerness, and this is your second point, there's an eagerness to live in community. You just see this in the way that Paul prays for them, first off. He says that he's constantly remembering them that he's praying for them all the time. He's praying for their growth. He's praying for their commitment to Jesus, right? And if any of his other letters are an indication of the kind of things that he's praying for, he's praying that they would come to a greater grasp of God's love for them. But you also see it in the way that, that he longs for encouragement, right? He says that he longs to visit in order to, to, to impart some sort of spiritual gift, And here he doesn't mean mean like he wants to impart the gift of tongues or (coughs) healing or something else. He he wants to give them some sort of encouragement that's going to build them up. And he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, hey, like, I want to come and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do all the encouraging. Now, what he wants is mutual encouragement. The Apostle Paul, like the Apostle Paul, greatest church planter ever, probably most influential letter writer in the New Testament himself says that he wants to be encouraged by these newer Christians. He wants this back and forth relationship of encouragement. So the question is, do you want that? When we start life groups in a couple of weeks, are you going to approach life group in in that same way? Are you going to show up just to receive? Or are you going to show up in order to give? Or better yet, are you going to show up to do both? Are you going to show up every week thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, my life, it, like, sucks. And guys, like, this week, like, I just need some encouragement. Like, oh my gosh, like, I just need people to focus on me tonight because life, like, you guys don't even understand. Like, my life is so hard. Like, your life is not that hard. But, like, my life, like, it needs to be about me tonight. I mean, nobody's ever going to say that, right? But, you know, people think it. Or on the flip side, are you going to be that guy who shows up and he's like, yeah, like, these people, like, they need some encouragement. Like, they don't really have anything to offer to me. um, Because obviously, like, I'm more mature than them. Like, they're still whatever. So, like, I just need to give them, like, encouragement and stuff. Like, I'm not going to listen to what Johnny says. Like, every time Johnny opens his mouth, he says some dumb crap. No offense, Johnny, but uh, I'm just going to wait till you're done talking and then let me, like, speak some truth to this group. Like, again, like, nobody is ever going to say that sort of stuff, but you know people are thinking it, right? And, and both of those attitudes, the, oh, my gosh, it's all about me, my life sucks, 
and the I'm only here because you guys need me to be here, both of those attitudes are just completely wrong. If Paul himself says that he can give and receive, how much more can you give and receive? Finally, uh, you see that there's this eagerness for community in the way that he, he wants to preach the gospel. Right? And, and you have to remember, like, Romans is written to Christians. It's written to a church. And he says that he wants to preach the gospel there. Why is that? It's because the gospel is meant to encourage us. So are you encouraging one another with the gospel? Because the gospel, for example, it encourages us when we're feeling guilt. Because the gospel says that your sins have been wiped away and you've been given the righteousness of Jesus. If you're feeling loneliness, the gospel reminds us that on the cross, Jesus experienced the loneliness and separation from God all for our sake. If you're in conflict, the gospel teaches us how to do conflict because it shows us that God took the initiative when there was conflict and he moved towards us. So we should take the same sort of initiative in our relationships as well. The gospel encourages us. So speak it to one another because that's what Paul is saying he wants to do. So there's this call to preach the gospel to one another. But Paul also has this call to preach the gospel eagerly to non-believers. And that's your last point. There is an eagerness for the gospel. Verse uh, 15, he says, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel, eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is its power, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew Then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, what is the gospel? First, let me tell you what it's not the gospel is not a concept or a philosophy, the gospel is not advice to be followed. The gospel is not that if you do X or Y or Z, you're going to be saved. The gospel is not uh, religious actions, right? The gospel is the announcement of the good news that has already been done. The gospel is the good news. It centers on Jesus, right? It's about a person. It's not a concept. And I would even be bold to say that the gospel is not even about us, right? The gospel is about him, It's the announcement of God's son. So here's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus was killed, buried, and rose again for our sins. That's the gospel. And this gospel has power, right? When this gospel, this simple message that Jesus died for our sins, when this gospel is spoken, it does things. Right? The gospel confronts us. Like You can't hear the gospel and not have a reaction. right? Because either you're going to hear the gospel and you're going to reject it and harden your heart. right? It has a power to do that. Or you're going to hear the gospel and it's going to change you. Right? The gospel changes minds. The gospel changes hearts. 
The gospel changes lives. There's this story of um, a professor at Emory University, um, at their school of theology, Fred Craddock, um, who was a preaching prof. And he tells uh, how one day the student from Emory, which is sort of a secular school, even though it has a seminary on campus, um, <coughs> how this student came in to his office one day. And basically she explained that she wasn't a Christian, she didn't go to church, and she was there because just recently she had come to this point in her life where she was just so low, just stuff was going so bad, life was so terrible that she was ready to commit suicide. So she had gone to a bridge a few days before uh, and she was going to jump. And then when she was standing up there, she told him that a scripture popped into her mind. And the scripture was, your life is not your own. You were purchased at a price. And this young girl, and she, she stepped off the bridge because she heard that my life is not my own. I was bought at a price. And she's absolutely confused. So she came to the school of uh, where the religious people were at school uh, and went to this famous professor um, to explain to her what happened. So he asked her, he was like, well, uh, have you ever read the Bible? And she was like, no, like, never done that. It's like, okay, well, like, maybe have you gone, do you go to church? She, no, like, I, I don't go to church. And she sort of thought for a minute, and she was like, well, when I was little, my grandmother used to take me to vacation Bible school. And at vacation Bible school, they would have us memorize these short, like, sentences, these, I guess, these Bible verses. And, and that's when Professor Craddock told her, that God had stored the gospel in your heart from when you were young so that one day it would save you. And the fact is that the gospel saves lives, right? But more importantly than that, the gospel is what changes our relationship with God, right? It's what saves us from, from the destiny that we were destined into, into death, so Paul's not ashamed of this gospel because he's seen that this gospel, it has power, right? The gospel, it's weak in, in the world's eyes. Like Christianity, the gospel, religion, all that stuff. It's, it's good for like poor people or people who are in rehab. Um, but like normal people, like they don't need that. If you're a normal person, you can handle your stuff, Right? But if you're a believer, you know that the gospel has power. If you're a Christ follower, you can look back in your life and you can say, where would I be today if it wasn't for the sake of the gospel? Some of you very clearly know where you would be today if it wasn't for the sake of the gospel. You would have committed suicide by now. Like you'd be stuck going from party to party or from hookup to hookup by now. You would have given in to desires that would have just destroyed your life. You'd be experience this piercing loneliness or you'd be chasing after every love or after every uh, opportunity for money or, or, or whatever it might be. You know where your life would be if it weren't for the sake of the gospel. If you're a Christ follower, you know that it is only by God's grace that you are what you are today. And Paul knew this firsthand, right? Because Paul was a murderer. He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. 
And then God rescued him and set him on a brand new trajectory for his life. He gave him a brand new purpose. And that was radically changed. He was radically changed because of the gospel. Not by any new religion, right? But by the message about Jesus Christ. So the gospel has power to transform. And Paul knew this firsthand. And I believe that you know this firsthand. And it's something that that I think we need to remember and we constantly need to remind ourselves of because it's the fact that the gospel transforms lives that that should make us unashamed, right? You know the gospel has power. You've seen it. You've experienced it. So why would you be ashamed of that, right? The opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is not just a willingness to speak it, right? The opposite of being ashamed is eagerness to speak it into people's lives. Because you know that each time you share it, each time you talk about Jesus, that that actually has power. So that's how Paul starts Romans. He starts it with a bang. He says, be eager for Jesus because he deserves it. Be eager for community because it's what you were saved into. Be eager for the gospel because the gospel has power to change lives. So the question is, are are we going to live like this? Or are you going to live like this? Are you going to live with that eagerness? There might be one of these three areas where you know, like, you're not super stoked about, super eager about. You might need to ask the Lord, like, how do I need to grow in one of these areas? Or more than one of these areas? And I would even ask you to just, I would challenge you to ask the Lord, what one of these areas does Soma need to grow in? Because if you call Soma your home, I would challenge you to just commit to taking steps necessary to grow personally in these areas. But, but even more so than that, take the steps necessary to help make Soma into a type of place that's eager for Jesus, right? That, that, that's eager to be an authentic, real, life-changing community, and that's eager to speak the gospel to one another and to people who are outside of these walls, all right? So let me go ahead and pray um, as the band comes up. Dear Lord, um, I thank you because your gospel has power and it's because of, of what you did on the cross that we're even here today. God, that we're even gathered in this room and that we can even worship you. Lord, that we can come into your presence. God, it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, so I pray that we would live unashamed of that, God, that we would live eager for the things of the gospel, for community, for bringing honor to Jesus' name. God, and I pray that even right now that you would remind us of the grace that you have for us, God, and how you've transformed our own lives, Lord, and let our worship and our lives just be an overflow of just the thankfulness for the grace that you've poured out upon us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.